So this evening I'd like to reflect on the theme of an intentional life. In the face of immense suffering, loss, grief, fear, I think we've probably all known moments of very unhesitating and heartfelt and spontaneous compassion, moments of reaching out to touch, embrace, and comfort another person who's perhaps been asked to bear anguish or pain that feels almost unbearable. I think in those moments when compassion is so unhesitating, they're not concerned with solutions or fixing or explaining, but just with the simplicity of being present. I think these moments of unhesitating compassion are some of the most profound moments of connectedness and immediacy we can ever know. I think it's also true that in the most desolate moments of our own lives, when there's heartache or loneliness or grief or suffering, most of us have known what it is to be touched by compassion, by the care of another. And compassion is, some, is a quality that has immense power, the power to heal, the power to feel less alone, the power to offer refuge. And these moments, as precious as they are, can also somehow feel like accidents. And too often we can feel more familiar with moments in the face of suffering, of fear, of helplessness, of disconnection, the full spectrum of emotional resistance we can all possess. Now, in this teaching, compassion is given as much value as wisdom. It is said to be why we practice the most noble quality of a human being. In this practice, too, compassion is not presented as being an accident, but really as a path and as a practice. I want to share with you from my own life two two encounters with compassion amongst many that have really left an enduring impression. And some of you have heard me speak about one of these before. My first was in encountering in India in the early 70s, a community of uh, Tibetan refugees, a group of people who had endured levels of hardship and suffering. I think that would devastate most people. The loss of their homes, the loss of their fellow monks and nuns and families, seeing people around them killed and abused, their monasteries and homes destroyed and families split, sometimes people who just disappeared. 
and then walking the almost insurmountable journey over the Himalayas to find sanctuary in India. And I was astonished to find, it seemed in these people, a, a gen very genuine sense that their hearts were intact. I was quite astonished to go into that community and to be met with warmth and friendliness and care that sometimes just seemed to exude in every action. I remember going into that community and you know, just seeing the people quietly going about their lives, looking after each other and welcoming strangers. And the second, my second encounter with compassion, much more recent when my elderly father emerged from a triple heart bypass and he was in intensive care. And he lives in Canada, so I was, you know, very far away in England and it was some days before I could get there. And every day I would call the intensive care unit, sometimes at midnight, their time. And I was absolutely astonished by the compassion and the care of the nurses who were looking after him. That they would stop their work to talk me through every step of his treatment. They would sit with him, they would stroke his head, hold his hand. And even, and as some of you might know, post that surgery, there's often a lot of delirium and sometimes quite violent delirium. And my father, very true to form, I must say. <laughs> managed to put one of the nurses in the emergency room. <laughs> and even as I found myself falling over myself an apology on the telephone. <laughs> with absolute humiliation and shame. The, nurse, the nurses would just say, it's not him. It's the drugs. It's the trauma. It's really not him. And the same nurse was back by his bedside the next day. <laughs> <laughs> and I reflect on both of these times, you know, the reality of the Tibetan refugees and also the intensive care nurses, and really it was so clear that for these people, compassion was not an accident, that they really shared equally in living an intentional life, of knowing what their hearts were committed to. I'm sure those Tibetans, young and old, there are many responses they could have had to their situation, and probably did have to the misery and the anguish of their experience. I'm, it, I'm sure, you know, they, they probably did experience this rage and resentment and fear, but you know, there was something that they valued more. There was something that they valued more than those feelings. And that what they valued more was compassion <coughs> and generosity and kindness as the most liberating and ennobling life they could live. I'm sure the intensive care nurses had many attitudes that they could have brought to their work, you know, indifference, weariness, habit. But 
I think they also knew that compassion and kindness was as crucial to the healing of their patients and the well-being of their patients' families as all the medical skills and expertise they could offer. This path, I think, is an invitation to all of us to live an intentional life, acknowledging that intention really is the forerunner of all of our words, our speech, our choices, our actions, and the quality of relationships that we have with others and with ourselves, the quality of relationship we have with every moment. And we do see, and I'm sure we've all seen, that with every word and with every thought and act, each of us truly does leave a footprint in the world and upon life. That every word and thought and act, you know, splinters into a thousand shards that ripple out to affect everyone and everything around us in ways that we can't always see. And in this path, we are really asked to leave a footprint of compassion and kindness. We are also asked to cultivate the intention for simplicity, for non-clinging, for renunciation, the intention to make our footprint in this world lighter and lighter. And yet, I think it's all, we all probably acknowledge that it's all too easy for our minds and our hearts and thus our lives to be governed by impulse and reactivity. We can feel the flow of mental states and emotions and reactions surge through us, surge through our mind, and then they govern our speech and our actions and our choices. You know, you can feel it. You can have a, a surge of anxiety and in that moment we can move so quickly into avoidance, into hiding. We can feel irritated or threatened or hurt and, you know, before we know it, words of ill will or thoughts of judgment are just filling our, flowing from our mouths or filling our consciousness. And isn't it true that we can often feel very powerless before these surges? It seems so quick, it seems so fast, so immediate that we are overwhelmed. And we act out those surges upon the stage of the world. We can feel it at a moment of discontent, you know, and you can see, you know, your hand reaching out to pick up your cell phone you know, and check your messages to reassure yourself in some way, to find something to entertain or to subdue the discontent. And you know what? It's not how we wish to be. It's not how we wish to be. We would all, I think, really long like to be compassionate, kind, balanced people. But it is not, we are not always as balanced and compassionate, as kind as we would like to be. And that is, I think, what an accidental life feels like. A, guy, a life that is, feels governed by the predominant <coughs> emotion or habit or reaction of the moment. And an accidental life is very often a life that leaves a very large footprint, not only upon the world, but upon our own sense of confidence and possibility. A footprint that is left in our own hearts and lives 
in terms of regret and feelings of failure, feelings of self-judgment. And I think an accidental life very rarely feels to be a free life. And I'm sure we acknowledge that we are really not so imprisoned by the world, but too often by the power of the impulses and the habits of our own mind. I think if we reflect upon it, we see that all of us hold deeply treasured values. All of us really hold within ourselves the, the values of respect and kindness and compassion and integrity. And, you know, the very frustrating thing about impulse and reactivity, being governed by them, is it feels like they sabotage all the intentions we hold most dear and value most deeply. And then the reality of us being here is not an accident, is it? I mean, the reality of us being here with all our different stories, all our different histories and backgrounds, and yet there's a manifestation of a longing, evidence just by being here, and a longing to, to live a life aligned with our most deeply treasured intentions. Without that longing, I don't think anybody could withstand the length of a retreat. <laughs> but that longing is what brings us to a retreat. That longing brings us back to the hall to sit once more with an aching back, an uncomfortable mind. We don't keep, you notice we don't take registration here. You notice we don't go to your room and drag you out of bed. You know, we don't do checklists. I mean, you show up all on your own steam. And you don't do it because it's so entertaining to be in here, you know, or because of the certificate that you're not going to get. Yeah? And, you, and you know, the reality is a retreat's not a vacation. It's absolutely not a vacation, you know. And, you know, it's probably one of the most demanding things you can do in your life. But surely that longing to live with compassion, the longing to live with kindness and wisdom, the lo a longing to find an end of suffering, a capacity to form loving relationships, the longing for freedom, the longing to find an end of struggle. This, I think, longing is as timeless as human beings are. It is the longing that the Buddha really did describe as a noble life and walking an ennobling path. And I think it's very important amidst all the changes, the ups and downs, the highs and the lows that we encounter on a retreat and encounter in our life. It's very important to remember that longing. And it's very important to remember those intentions because they're so easy to forget. You know, and sometimes I think it might be helpful every time we begin a sitting or a walking to really ask yourself, why, why am I here? You know, what am I doing here? I mean, there's a way of asking that question in an incredibly doubtful fashion. But I think there's a very way of asking that question that actually reminds us of the significance of what you are doing every time you sit in a cushion, every time you go on your walking path. To be able to ask ourselves, what is this time dedicated to? What's this time committed to? I think it's what I call holding a long view 
because you, you know that you cannot judge your practice by the events of a single sitting or a single walking. Just as you know you cannot judge or describe yourself by the contents of your mind in any one moment. It is why the Buddha talks so much, not just about, as I said in the beginning of this retreat, not so much just about formal practice, but about walking a path. A path, this path has a beginning. You know, in the fearless acknowledgement that there is distress and there is unsatisfactoriness in this life. But this path also has a direction, a deeply held, felt sense of aspiration within it to cultivate the understanding that liberates our hearts from the grip of greed and hatred and delusion, the aspiration to cultivate the freedom and the compassion and the kindness that is possible for us as human beings, the aspiration to really have a mind that is a friend, to access the creativity that of our hearts and our minds. And this path has a fruition the heartfelt knowing of that liberation and the embodiment of that liberated heart in unconditional compassion and unshakable balance. And it is a path in which everything really does matter. Embracing every aspect of our life inwardly and outwardly to live an intentional life. I want to read you something from the Buddha kind of formal language, but um, this noble life we live does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit as its goal, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit as its goal, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit or goal, or even knowledge for its benefit or its goal. But it is this unshakable liberation of the heart that is the goal of this noble life its heartwood and its end. Now, the Buddha described aspiration as the essence of a free life. And I think there really is an undeniable link between aspiration and intention. Intention is what saves aspiration from just being daydreams or fantasy. So there's an undeniable, undeniable link between aspiration and intention just as equally there is a powerful link between intention and the quality of our experience of our life, our heart, our mind, on a moment-to-moment level. I think I'm not unusual in saying when I began this path long ago, (laughs) 40 years ago, (laughs) when I began this path, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea why I was there. I had no idea where I was going. And I began this path, you know, in a, in a kind of more unconventional tradition, you know, where, you know, I spent my day doing mantras and prostrations and visualizing thousand-armed deities, you know, and making girl offerings and, you know, all kinds of stuff. I had no clue what was going on. But also, I was also very aware that the confusion I felt about what I was doing in the path was also a pretty accurate description of my mind and my life. It wasn't just like the path was confused. I was confused. You know? But I did know there was a longing. 
you know, there was some kind of really sort of embryonic longing that really kind of sustained me, even though I would say, you know, in those times it, it was actually pretty difficult. You know, I mean, conditions were very hard. As, you know, you all hear us talk about these incredibly, you know, our heroic times in Asia, you know, with the rats and the bed bugs, you know, and the, you know, and the illness and, you know, all that stuff that was, I mean, I didn't have a well day for five years, you know, and I thought, what am I doing here, you know, but there was something that was really important for me and, you know, about having a mind that it was a friend, even the longing to know what I was doing, even the longing to know what I was doing. And, you know, I found that as I listened to the teaching, it, I realized how very timeless that longing was. And even though I had hardly words to describe what helped me to be there, it was almost as if the teaching was giving a language to that longing. And yet there was still a gap, to say the least, a chasm, I would say. Uh, between that embryonic longing and its embodiment, an absolute chasm. I certainly found it incredibly exciting and, and exhilarating, inspiring, you know, to hear all the teachings about transcendent experiences and, you know, the stories of these remarkable and heroic yogis, you know, and the teachings of liberation. But I think, you know, on a more immediate level, I was even more touched and inspired to see people who actually seemed to live compassion, who actually seemed to live patience and generosity and happiness. And yet still for me, that at that time, it all sti still seemed incredibly remote when, you know, my, my aspirations felt really tiny, you know, like I just wanted to get out, out of bed in the morning without a sense of dread, you know. I wanted just to know a way of being without being engulfed by the storms of my own mind, and a little, little peace would have felt fantastic. But the more I listened, the more I realized that this teaching was about me, and it was really not about me either. That what was really talked about, being talked about, was really the universality of fear and struggle and sorrow, and also the universality of the longing to be free from fear and struggle and sorrow. And it was also pretty apparent to me at that time that this path was going to take a little time. You know, maybe a lifetime, maybe a lifetime. But I also did get the sense that in truth, the nobility of this path was not in the achievement. The nobility of this path was not in the, the achievement of some experience or some attainment, but actually the nobility of this path was in loving the journey. It was in loving to, loving waking up. It was actually loving just the sense of walking a path that was, I felt was truly noble. And loving that possibility of bringing together aspiration, intention, and embodiment. It's often said to be three steps of insight, you know, and the first step is to hear the teaching and to have an intellectual, conceptual agreement with it. This is very important. 
I mean, it would be pretty weird, wouldn't it, if you sat there and we sat up here and told you nothing changed and we were all going to live forever and none of us was ever going to get sick, you know, and, and you know, and this, this self-idea was, you know, something to really pursue and cultivate and a very good idea, you know, and a little bit more greed and fear in the world would be fantastic. I mean, he would listen to us and he said, these, not, these folks are nuts, you know. So it is very important that we listen to the teaching and we do have this intellectual agreement with it at least, hmm? that it makes sense to us, it actually makes sense. Then the second step of insight is said that we take that intellectual agreement and that listening and we look within ourselves and we look within our own experience and we check it out. You know, is this true for us in our own experience? Is it true? You know, does it make a difference to our lives? Is it possible for us that we actually really check that out, that we have that inner, direct understanding experience? Because that's the beginning of confidence. And then the third step of insight is said to be the embodiment of what we understand to be true. And, you know, I think probably we would all agree that embodiment is the most challenging of all of the steps of insight. But the embodiment is also what gladdens our heart and inspires us. So the Buddha talked about the first noble truth. You know, the reality of unsatisfactoriness at times suffering. Now the Buddha's not the only one who ever talked about this, is it? I mean, you know, great writers of Greek tragedies, you know, Shakespeare, you know, ancient spiritual thinkers, contemporary philosophers, our neighbor next door. <laughs> We'll all talk about the reality of unsatisfactoriness and at times suffering in this life. However, sometimes we turn that inevitable reality of unsatisfactoriness into a question of just asking, you know, why is life so difficult? I want to read you something from a colleague of mine. He says, we just get the hang of being here and think we've learned a thing or two about life, and then we have to get used to the idea of decay, death, and rot, and not being here any longer. <laughs> Sounds kind of bleak, doesn't it? But, <laughs> kind of true, too. <laughs> I mean, in between the beginning and the ending of, of our story, of course, we have many moments of delight and joy and love and happiness and connectedness. And most of us certainly have our own measure of adversity and sorrow and affliction, of loss, of body pain, of illness, of rejection and disappointment, and a mind that, quite frankly, can drive us crazy. Hmm? And the confusion that besets us, that even when we get what we want, we discover it doesn't do the trick. That's a really bad one. <laughs> that it doesn't deliver the ease and the happiness we imagined. You know, a lot of contemporary so sociologists talking about the failure of consumerism. Just didn't deliver. Apparently we are more unhappy now than we have been for the last 50 years as human beings. Didn't deliver. The Buddha also suggested that there are ways of reacting to this life with its tragedies and its sorrows that can inadvertently create even more 
difficulty for ourselves and others. It's almost as if the awareness of unsatisfactory and the awareness of pain can have two children. <clears throat> and one of those children is to flounder in the face of suffering, to go into the whole avoidance, resistance, blame mechanisms, become agitated, or we try and use that other sneaky mechanism of craving you know, to end suffering. I'm unhappy because I'm disappointed. I'll order a movie. You know, I'll go out for a drink. I'll turn on the TV, perpetuating the cycle of distress. But the other child or the other children of the awareness of suffering, of course, is compassion, aspiration, and intention. And for some people, their first step the first step into a compassionate life is through their outrage and sense of injustice about the suffering in life. Our compassion and an intentional life really asks for more than just an awareness of suffering because that's hardly news to any of us. It's really about changing the lens of how we hold that awareness. And it's why this is called the first noble truth or why the awareness of unsatisfactoriness is called an ennobling truth, because it asks us to respond to suffering. Not say, why is it, is it there, or how do I get rid of it, but to respond to suffering, suffering and to acknowledge the possibilities of bringing turmoil and fear and resistance to an end, of bringing distress to an end, and bringing the causes of distress to an end. That awareness of suffering is, is ennobling if it leads us to commit ourselves to that intention, to align our lives with that intention to bring distress to an end, so that that intention can become our aspiration and indeed our life. The Dalai Lama once said that I cannot pretend to feel compassion all the time but I consider it to be the most noble quality of a human being, and I aspire to it. I really, really doubt if the Dalai Lama would say, oh, if I wake, you know, when I wake up the morning, in the morning, wouldn't it be lucky if I bumped into a moment of compassion? I doubt if Gandhi, you know, would get up in the morning and say, well, if I have a really good day, I won't strike back at the British. You know, I don't think the great nuns and monks that, you know, and, and, and teachers and people we admire in practice get up in the morning and say, if I feel like it, I'll practice today. None of us wants to struggle. None of us wants to be lost in self-preoccupation. None of us wants to be filled with greed or rage or judgment of hatred. Also, none of us gets up in the morning you know, and thinks this is a good day to foster confusion, anxiety, and doubt. <laughs> the fostering of intention and com a compassionate life is a seed that we plant and nurture in the earth of our life, in the earth of habits, in the moments when we don't feel like it. In the moments when we don't feel like it. That is what is so radical about this path, that we choose not to be governed by our reactions 
or by our impulses. You know, neuroscientific research at the moment tells us, you know, that these tendencies towards attack, defense, gratification, three primary tendencies are pretty much hardwired into our psyche. And as I mentioned the other night, they're tendencies that through our evolutionary journey ensured our survival. But now they, those tendencies serve to ensure our isolation and our discontent and our confusion. Those same neuroscientists tell us that these habitual tendencies are indeed not life sentences. You know, with practices, they are transformed into more altruistic and skillful inclinations towards kindness and compassion and empathy, qualities that ensure not only our survival, but our well-being and connectedness. In the, in the time of the Buddha, you know, he pointed towards these very same tendencies, you know, hatred and gratification and, and greed and ill will and cruelty and self-absorption. He pointed to these as being what really causes us to suffer. Also, that these tendencies, these inclinations, are the roots of our impulsive and unconscious behaviors. You know, that, that the, you know, our unconscious impulsive behaviors to strike out are rooted in these tendencies of, of fear and, and ill will and the need for gratification. <clears throat> he also pointed out, the Buddha did, that no matter how deep deep these underlying tendencies out are, there is a way out. There is a way to liberate the heart. Compassion is a path of responsiveness and it's not an accident. It's a moment-to-moment -moment cultivation of intention and commitment. First, there is the aspiration to conceive so deeply of the genuine possibility of our own liberation to conceive of the possibility of awakening our heart and life. If you were to practice in Asia, you know, it's very interesting. This is considered to be the reason to practice. It is the reason to practice. And no one doubts that anyone can do it, you know. Everybody has complete, you, know, you go around and says, oh yes, Confidence. In fact, you know, you go around monasteries in Asia, you see any, any awakened beings here? And they say, oh, yeah, you go to that monastery down the road, you know, they got three of these and three of those and four of those. It's kind of like, you know, the currency of language, you know, that actually it's a given that you can be liberated. You know, and, and teachers teach in that regard and people practice in that spirit. There's no doubt in it, not like it's a few people, yeah, a few special people 2,600 years ago who managed to get this together. You know, it's about now, and it's about us. So conceiving deeply and it, of our own possibility of liberation, and it really doesn't matter how long our history is of feeling incapacitated or unworthy, there is, it is an unconditional possibility and invitation. Now, of course, there is a shadow side to aspiration. One shadow side is that it can turn into ambition and striving, a little bit more aversion in a more new enlightened language. But the other near enemy of aspiration, I have to say, is being willing to settle for too little. That is the other near enemy, being will willing to settle for just too little, a path of minimized possibilities. 
Now, on the footsteps of aspiration, there is intention. And you know what intention is? Intention is a commitment to aspiration. That's what intention is. It is a commitment to our, lo- our most deeply held longings. It's making a commitment to them. And it is that intention that rescues aspiration from being fantasy. I'm going to read again a poem I read the other night from a Chan Nun. I urge those of you who aspire to enlightenment, in inspiring to enlightenment, be diligent. If your mind is not completely sincere, you will wallow forever in the bitter sea. The great earth is vast and without limit, and sentient beings are too many to count. Yet how many people are, where, are there with the sense to leap out of the bitterness of samsara? However, we should not underestimate the size of the cloth. It is no easy path to live an intentional life. It is, as the Buddha said, swimming against the tide. It is swimming against the tide of habitual tendencies. It's swimming against the tide of impulse. It's swimming against the tide of habit and the sense of impossibility. We should not underestimate the size of the cloth. To live a life that is guided by kindness, compassion, and renunciation, the commitment to not cling anywhere. You know, it seems hard, doesn't it? But, you know, just reflect on the alternative. How hard is a life where ill will and fear and craving and reactivity hold dominion? I mean, how hard is that life? You know? How hard is an, an anxious life lived in an anxious heart? How hard it is to live an impulsive life, and I mean hard on us. I don't mean without effort, hard on us. How hard on us is it to live an impulsive life filled with regrets? Aspiration and intention really asks for a moment-to-moment remembering and commitment and effort. Got to add that piece in there. Effort. Takes effort. Because it really does take effort to crack an impulsive life, to crack the habit of an impulsive life. But you know, Uh, An intentional life is increasingly a life without residues. And sometimes the Buddha described a liberated heart as a heart without residues. What are the residues? If only, I should have, regret, blame, I wish. Those are the residues of an impulsive life. An intentional life is increasingly a life without residues. And it is about remembering. It's about effort. You know, when we wake up, what is the first thought that we can remind ourselves of to go into our day with? Can we remind ourselves to go into our day with kindness, with compassion, with the commitment not to cling? When we arrive on our cushion or our walking path, can we remember why we are there to cultivate the kindness, the compassion, that is possible for us in every moment. When we leave a retreat and we go into our families and uh, our colleagues and our friends and our difficult people, can we remind ourselves of that intention to bring into all of those moments those longings that lie in our hearts, but the commitment to those longings? 
for compassion and kindness? Can we remember when we meet the moments of aversion and judgment and distractedness that these are also deserving of kindness and compassion and renunciation? When we find ourselves in the midst of an aversion or craving attack or lost in some epic story, can we remember that there is something that we value more deeply? Can we remember that there's something we value more deeply than underlying tendencies that do not serve us well or serve us others well? And we don't ever have to wait, you know, for the moments to cultivate intention and aspiration. We don't have to wait for the great tsunamis of aversion and craving and discontent. But the small whispers, the small whispers. Deepama is a much-loved teacher in this tradition. She says, the whole path of mindfulness is this. Whatever you are doing, be aware of it. Can we remember that the small moments or the big moments of habit or impulse are also the doorways of awakening when we really can begin to walk a different path? We remember and we remind ourselves that there is perhaps nothing of greater significance that we can dedicate ourselves to in this life than kindness and compassion and freedom. Patro Vimpuche, he once said, to practice with greater tenacity, the greater closer one gets to death, is a mark of a Dharma practitioner who has not been caught by the frost. We've all been caught by the frost. You know, the moments that remind us of what it is, ask us to remember what it is that we value more than impulse, more than forgetfulness. It takes a cultivation and it takes uh, effort. Impulse is born of underlying tendencies of ill will and craving and delusion. And most of us, are, I'm afraid, do not just slide magically and gracefully into an intentional life. We have to practice it. We have to practice kindness. We have to practice compassion. We have to practice letting go. That is the nature of a committed life. Our practice begins with a lot of effort, but the fruition of that effort is actually greater joy, greater freedom, greater connectedness, greater intimacy. And what takes so much effort at times in the beginning does with practice increasingly become more naturalized and we begin more and more to discover that very unhesitating, natural kindness and compassion and letting go as wisdom responses to suffering that lead to the end of suffering and that liberate our hearts. I want to end with a poem by Mary Oliver. <coughs> Strangely, it's called Mindful. Every day I see or I hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. 
nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. So if we have a moment quietly together. <clears throat>